Welcome to DLA Piper's Tech Law Podcast Series with me, Chloe Forster, a technology lawyer at global law firm DLA Piper. Welcome to today's podcast in which I'm joined by prominent representatives from the British Retail Consortium to together explore how tech is shaping the future of retail. This is all part of our preparation for our widely acclaimed DLA Piper European Technology Summit 2019, which is now scheduled for Tuesday the 15th of October at ETC Venues, 155 Bishopsgate, London. Do look out for further details on DLA Piper's social media channels about our major biennial conference attended by over 350 senior legal and commercial executives. As the agenda includes a panel discussion I shall be moderating on the day under the banner of revitalising retail, how tech is shaping the future of retail, as well as a further session on accidents waiting to happen, cybersecurity beyond 2020, hosted by my colleague Patrick Von Eck, both of which will be building upon today's discussions. I'm a lawyer in our technology transactions and strategic sourcing group, advising on complex and strategic technology and sourcing transactions with a particular focus on digital transformation in the retail and consumer goods sectors. Today, I extend a special welcome to Liliana Danila, an economist, and James Martin, a crime and security advisor, both from the British Retail Consortium. Hi, Liliana and James. For the benefit of our listeners, it'd be great if you could give a brief introduction to yourselves, your professional backgrounds, and perhaps also an introduction to the work you're currently doing with the BRC and your members. Liliana, perhaps you can tell us about yourself first. Hi, Chloe. Thank you for having us. So I'm, uh, I'm an economist by trade. Before I had joined the BRC, I was in academia. And then I, um, I joined the, the BRC as, uh, as an economist where I'm uh, taking care of economic analysis of either uh, employment or inflation or uh, the wider uh, condition in, uh, in the market. And James, yourself? Hi, Chloe. Thanks for having us. Yes, so uh, I'm the crime and security advisor, which sounds incredibly grand, but isn't always. <laughs> and basically, we try and help our, our members who are retailers from all sectors and of a range of sizes, or they tend towards the slightly larger end, the the multinationals and and what have you, just to be a little bit more secure. So there's lots of bricks and mortar work we do, so around violence, around theft, around fraud, and then also a huge cybersecurity practice. And and that's what we're here to talk about today. And that's incredibly important to the entire industry, perhaps more so than any other industry than tech itself. Uh, And so I think this is a really good opportunity, and that's why it's so good to come and talk to you about some of these trends and issues. Thank you, Liliana. Thank you, James. So moving on to the first topic we're going to cover today, how tech is influencing the future of retail on the ground. Technology has been disrupting the retail market for many years, as we've seen the move to online sales channels and increasing market share for the original digital disruptors. Technology has already reinvented the way that customers shop and how retailers run their businesses around the world. And it feels to me that we're at something of a critical point where retailers are having to assess technology investment strategies. Liliana, how do you view the state of the sector at the moment? Well, there's, a, there's a confluence of forces which, um, which is putting a lot of pressure on, uh, on retail. On the one hand, there's the macroeconomic environment where retailers are squeezed between uh, increasing costs and a very weak consumer demand. But then on top of that, there has been this absolute uh, deep transformation, this tsunami which was actually... Um, which started with the advent of online sales, but then it continued with other technological development. The size of this, uh, of this transformation is quite, uh, quite incredible. In 2006, 3% of all sales were done online only. In 2018, we are up to 18% of those sales. And then if we are 
to look separately at what happens in the food market versus non-food market, where non-food is a term quite, uh, quite uh, abstract, doesn't say anything, but it literally refers to everything which is non-food, from electronics to clothing to, uh, um, I know, carpets. Out of the non-food market, 26% of sales were done online. So you could think that if you are sharing a piece of uh, pie with your friend, out of, uh, out of the pie you eat a quarter of that, right? They're trying to, to illustrate how big that, uh, that share actually is. In the food um, market, that's not quite as big. Only 8% of the sales are online, which would be you're sharing a pie or a pizza with 12 other friends. But um, that's, uh, that's growing. What this means and what this has meant for retail is that actually consumers today or shoppers today are completely different, have a completely different behavior and completely different expectations than they had just a decade ago. The online has allowed for a seemingly endless uh, product selection. At the same time, it has allowed for price comparison or in other words, for price transparency. Mm -hmm. It has allowed for people to be able to check what are the features of the product. And it has enabled uh, delivery, which in turn made, uh, made consumers very, uh, very hooked on convenience. So that's, uh, that's how it started, and those are the trends that we, we still see accelerating. And in terms of growth in, uh, in the retail market, growth comes from online growth. And so one of the things that I think you've just picked up on then that I think is really interesting is from a, a retailer's perspective, trying to understand how to invest in the right technologies, what's going to work for your brand, and also what's going to work for your customer, needing to understand who your customers are before you embark upon a digital transformation journey. So the customer profile and what they would be open to from a technology mm -hmm. perspective for some of the more traditional bricks and mortar retailers that you might find on the high street might be very different to what someone, a customer of a young, up-and-coming, trendy boutique might be open to, just thinking about the different profiles of the customers. How can retailers anticipate that in, in their investment strategies and bear that in mind? Well, I think the, um, the most important thing at the center of any sort of investment decision is to understand who your customers really are, whether they are young or they are of a certain social demographic, uh, the retailer, the business has to know who their customers are. So they have to, um, to look into AI investment to be able to, uh, to track who their customers are, to be able to personalize not only offers to the customers, but even more the, the retailers that are at the front, for, uh, forefront of the transformation are retailers that actually have moved from, uh, from mass production to, to mass personalization, if you wish. Mm. So these days, if you cannot really personalize it for one individual, at least for a relatively small group of individuals with the same trends. And there are different approaches. What's going to, what's the right decision? We, it's always a, some, something that can be decided in hindsight, right? But what many retailers are trying to do is to, to have a conversation, a direct conversation with customers, mm. be it via uh, social media or via their um, so-called influencers and see what, uh, what they would like, what kind of uh, trainer they would, uh, they would like, what, what feature in a specific uh, piece of clothing, or would they like to have a technology where um, JD just developed an app where uh, you can uh, put your makeup on um, or 
try different makeups on, uh, on your phone. So try to get the direct feedback from the customer. Where, again, 10 years ago, before we had uh, access to, uh, uh, to big data and big computing, the way decisions would be made was based on, uh, on some surveys, on some market trends, but not looking at individuals' opinions and, uh, and tastes and um, preferences. Yeah, I think it's a really, really interesting point because I think the, the level of data that, that retailers have, and actually probably more accurately, their appreciation of the level of data that they have and their understanding of the art of the possible mm -hmm. in terms of analytics has really evolved following the work that they've had to do in the advent of GDPR. I think also in terms of the so-called traditional retailers, some of them that used to work on the business mod model of the catalogue because they already had access to a customer database and they had more information mm -hmm. about those customers. And then they were also able to put in the investment to develop their supply chains and uh, automate their uh, warehouses. They are now proven to be quite, uh, quite successful. Mm. There's that, um, again, that aspect that also revolves around knowing your customer in the end. Thank you. No, I think that's, that's got to be absolutely right. And, and one of the difficult things, I think, when, when facing what are huge investment decisions is something might not quite stack up in the here and now, but it's very difficult to know what the market will be in five, ten years. I think what, what Lil um, traced there was an incredibly rapid evolutionary process. And if you hadn't invested in 2004, you know, why would you spend all that money on something that's 2% of sales? But actually now you're at 25% and the, the lag times are quite significant. It takes some really difficult leadership to have these discussions. And in terms of, of crime and security, it does raise some, some challenges, I think it's fair to say. It's a, a lovely civil service phrase, but I think it's the right <laughs> one here. So if we, if we think about this, this slightly more all-enveloping uh, retail experience, which has a, a, an interesting dichotomy between online and bricks and mortar, and, and one of the things we're clear about is it's not right to think about one or the other. They, they really build each other. Mm -hmm. And that requires significant connectivity. It requires a vast amount of data that you're applying in quite quick circumstances, I suppose. It requires quite a significant in investment in that kind of space and doing some pretty interesting, clever, cutting-edge things with it. And all of these add up to quite a uh, tempting target for any hackers out there and what have you. So it does raise some pretty significant issues. GDPR, I think, has catalyzed the process that um, retail is already kind of going through. So they weren't blasé about these things. They were investing significant sums and they were at the cutting edge of quite a lot of these systems but the it would be wrong I think to believe that the threat of a four percent turnover fine hasn't <laughs> accelerated some of that thinking mm. so if you look at say uh, internet of things so you're looking at web connected devices in store which potentially can access quite a lot of data you need to think really carefully about what are your access controls how much needs to be there where are you remotely hosting the the calculation algorithms because there's a strong intellectual property value in those which is not something we look after but i suspect it's something you see all the time chloe and and, and that you may be much more interested on that than we are i'm certain so that's really valuable stuff and, and retailers get that more than they ever did and they're willing to put in place some pretty pretty strong systems be wrong to go into detail because we don't want to give people pointers but um they're they're doing some quite fun things out there even bits of the government who do really fun things are sometimes quite shocked at how advanced they are it's really good to hear and reassuring from a retail customer perspective and <laughs> um, one thing that i'm quite interested in exploring a little bit further is just the um 
the way in which that sort of slight nervousness about the the consequences of getting it wrong under GDPR has has led to retailers shaping their strategies in slightly different ways. So we recently conducted a data protection and privacy survey published in February 2019, and it was identified that there had been over 59,000 data breaches reported across Europe since GDPR had come into force, which is a staggering amount and I think shows the scale and the um, significance of the issues at hand, but also perhaps a slight nervousness around data controllers as to how they report these things and perhaps erring slightly more on the side of caution. How is that, in your view, inhibiting decisions as to what technologies to invest in and future strategies? So it's an appreciation of risk question. And what makes it, I think, doubly difficult is it's very difficult to quantify the nature of that risk. Very senior business people are good at understanding risks and pathways and blockages and how they get from one place to another when they can calculate the profit and loss around something. But with cybersecurity, what you really can't get to is the nature of the threat that evolves quite quickly and comes out of nowhere. So if we look at all the big, very famous things, so WannaCry, not Petya, um, and what have you, they were vulnerabilities, tiny vulnerabilities in systems that you know the NHS used, etc., um, and had been used quite happily for 15 years. You could have spent billions of pounds, and you would never have come down to that the kind of things that caught those systems. So it's just really difficult to understand where you're going. And I don't envy the people who have to give the message we've spent x tens of millions of pounds and we can't hand on heart tell you we're more or less secure than we were but we're certainly more or less secure more secure against the particular threats we set out to stop i suppose bringing all that together what does the board need to know what kind of things should it think about and, and this is something we're doing some work with uh, the national Cybersecurity center DCMS and others. And I think the first point would be to take very good legal advice uh, and be as open and honest as you absolutely can be with your lawyers. That's always a good starting point because this is a, a legal construct. And I suspect it's good to get the tech people and the legal people in the same room together. Otherwise, you get two slightly different stories. Yeah. And that gives you a, an understanding of that part. I think it's don't be unreasonably afraid, but do be pretty wary of the kind of risks mm. and take a, a, a a decent appreciation of it and do understand that a lot of this investment is not nice to have it's potentially if you don't do it you may not be operating in five or ten years on anything like the scale so these are not you know zero-sum games and then I think get the tech people involved design the systems properly and proportionately and don't forget some of the the less glamorous the less cutting-edge side you can do a lot with pretty simple cyber hygiene so decent password programs I'm thinking 10 or 15 years ago, the amount of times you'd go past a computer to find the password scribbled on a post-it. I'm sure that doesn't happen anymore, but just <laughs> to show how far that. we've come and make sure you patch things, have a really active system and try and build it as a cultural imperative rather than a technical thing. And in that way, for a board who are used to thinking in these kind of terms, it shouldn't be that frightening. They don't need to know the absolute nuts and bolts of every type of attack vector. Uh, of every type of system. Um, I mean, certainly I don't know that. That's not where I come from. But they need to know who can give them that advice and they need to know what the right questions to ask are. And, and I'm sure that goes the same with their legal counsel like DLA Piper as well. <laughs> I think it's, it's a really good point. And I think actually one of the things that has come out of a number of the themes we've talked about in previous podcasts is the importance of when you're embarking on a digital transformation journey, actually bringing all the different parts of your organisation to the conversation as early as possible. So 
not just embarking on a project and identifying some technology and saying, right, we're going to do this, and then right at the end of the process saying, oh, we need to speak to someone in security about this, because that's not good for anyone. It's not good for the organisation because it, it halts the process, but also it doesn't lead to necessarily the right outcome. And so, Liliana, keen to get your thoughts on this too. As we're embarking on new technology deployments, what do you see in the market as being the focus points for retailers? There are so many developments on so many margins that it's, um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't venture to just name one as a focus point, but I can, uh, I can talk about a few. What, what happens, what's the bigger picture, is that there's no more a clear line between offline and online. Mm-hmm. Right? And the fact that the shopper is not thinking of today I'm going to make an online purchase and tomorrow an in-store purchase, right? So uh, customers, again, have been have been used by now to, to have everything on their fingertips and to have very, uh, very smooth uh, experiences. And it's around providing that sort of smooth experience that uh, the winners in the market seem to be... Um, Concentrating, and what that means? Well, it means it means an array of things. It means uh, they have um, automated uh, warehouses. It means that uh, they are able to um, to use AI to again to to make personalized offers, but also to uh, to create uh, heat maps within the stores to see to sort of take the pulse instantly on what is hot, what the, what do uh, uh, consumers like, what uh, what they should focus on mm. in terms of future demand or very near future demand. In terms of other kind of, I know, geospatial analysis, mm-hmm. trying to make decisions on which stores to uh, to close, where in the past th- that decision would have been um, taken solely based based on uh, what would have been the sales in stores and what, were, what was the, the size of the payroll. Now there's also the question of how is one store contributing to the overall performance of the company? Because one store might not have too many sales in store, but might attract a lot of traffic such that then people go home and order online. So that kind of uh, usage of, um, of AI. There are also uh, different technologies which are deployed in store to try to, uh, to attract uh, customers. Mm-hmm augmented reality or virtual reality. Mm-hmm. You might have a virtual mountain in the store if you are selling uh, uh, mountain equipment to try to see how, I know, putting those skis on would, uh, would get you down the mountain. Or you might have just a virtual slide in the store purely for fun to, uh, to have people come in and hang out in your store and then hopefully get inspired to, uh, uh, to check you out as a brand. I, th- I think that's right, and it goes with a, a stream of thinking mm. where the, the retail space is not ne- just about selling. Mm-hmm. It's about uh, attracting people in and starting to build a, a much stronger and deeper bond with your, your potential customers. Um, and that's pretty difficult to do. That's quite a big mind shift. If you were, I suppose if you were to think about it in, in almost historical terms, you've had through the 20th century an agglomeration of retail. So it's gone from small individual shops or uh, larger individual department stores, which can offer that personalised service because the nature of their client base is hyper-localised and pretty predictable. So you go in, you've, your children have gone to school with the person running the shop, you've known them for 15 years, they know what you want, they know what you get, they know that you're a little bit tight of money at this time of the month, so they'll give you some credit, etc. 
And then so through the, the, the later part of the 20th century, we moved away from that in all but the very high-end sh- stores. So it's much less about what you want, it's about what they can offer you and you, you take it in because at scale, the technologies weren't there to allow you to bring the benefits out. But actually AI and, and the use of this data, and, and AI is, is terrifically exciting, but it's nothing more than uh, getting computers to do the kind of things that people might do if you had enough people and enough time and, and they feed on data. And it's, it's really fascinating, but that's all it is. It's not particularly dangerous or scary. It's just, again, speeding up these processes. But you allow much bigger stores to give you the benefits of that personalization in a way that they, they couldn't 10, 20, yeah. 30 years ago, or, or they will do. Part of the compact is that... I will give you some of my data as well as some of my money, but you will store that safely. And so cybersecurity, and, and I think this is something that the, the breach reports bring out really nicely, and I, I, I saw the work he did last year, I thought it was really interesting. It's not, a, it's not just a question of cost and benefit and possible fines like you might think about in other areas of law when you're advising on the risks of something. It's actually the intangible of trust is what you can lose, and that's why perhaps they're being overcautious. That's also why we would recommend so strongly that they invest that kind of money because once you break that trust, you've got a really expensive time getting it back. You have to do all sorts of things you wouldn't otherwise have had to do. So picking up on the understanding from a retailer about what it is that their customers want, Liliana, what it is that you imagine that the store of the future might look like? I think the, the key word we'd like to, uh, to throw out uh, these days is that the store, the new store is going to be experiential. And what we mean by that is um, that the store is going to actually fulfill more functions than it currently does. Typically, or historically, you have gone to a store to pick up whatever you need, your, uh, I know, your eggs or your um, uh, sweater, and gone home. What stores already, or some stores already are, they are much more than that, because... Um, with the interplay between online and offline, some of the stores are also fulfillment centers. Right? So you can uh, go in store and pick up the order that you have uh, ordered online, or you can go in store and uh, place an order that will then be delivered to your, uh, to your home. So that's, uh, that's one. Stores these days are also um, a showroom, and I don't mean by that just a place where they display their merchandise, but rather a place where they're trying I get to, to get a feel for, uh, for what's going to be cool in the future. What, what do people like and what, what they would like to see in, uh, in, their, um, in their products. And finally, what stores are is a hangout place. Right? Stores anyways have always been a place where people would go to, uh, um, to hang out over the weekend and have a fun shopping trip. The problem now is that a lot of the shopping happens online. So what stores need to do to keep attracting those people is to to offer different kind of experiences. And we've talked about some of the AR, VR uh, experiences, but they can be a, a host of other things. And they can be experiences which are centered around technology, but they can also be experiences a grocer, for instance, could just have a chef cooking or could have a, a restaurant in a part of, uh, of their store. So it's not necessarily that the experience has to be technology-centric, uh, if, uh, if you wish. And finally, there's also um, worth mentioning that retail these days is really a tale of two, two groups, two retailers, if you wish. The discounters have no online presence, mm-hmm. and they 
don't appear that they're going to go there anytime soon. Mm -hmm. But they offer a, a price quality uh, proposition, which is very enticing to uh, a segment of, uh, of shoppers. And at the same time, just because they don't have online presence, that doesn't mean that they are not making use of the AI. It's good to notice that actually what success means might, uh, might be enveloped in different ways by different retailers. James, turning now to you and your perspective from the um, angle of your the work you do with retailers around crime and avoiding crime, how do these technologies that are being deployed in store also offer benefits for retailers in terms of stopping crime or actually is it viewed the other way and that they're creating risks in that area? The story of retail crime is, is quite a difficult one. Um, we do an annual survey. The next one is due out within the next couple of weeks, so I really should be <laughs> writing it right now, but I, I thought this looked much more fun. But what it does show is the, the total cost of crime is rising considerably. So I think last year the cost was uh, around £770 million. That's a really conservative estimate. Um, I suspect it's significantly higher mm. than that. Most of that is what we call customer theft, and, and that's coming in at over half a billion. And if you look at um, some of the, the profit margins, and it's no secret that retail's in a, a difficult place, certainly single digit, sometimes low single digit, that's a significant bite. Not to give any spoilers, but I would be surprised if the figure had dropped uh, in the next one, in, uh, during the next couple of weeks, a spoiler alert, uh, and I suspect it might be significantly higher. But one of the, the parts of that, that makes up for it that actually saw a, a reduction was, was fraud. Uh, I hope that fall continues but I, I'm not absolutely certain it will but the the cost to fraud came down by around 30 million and and so that we looked at that quite a lot and a lot of it was investment in new technologies new mm -hmm. payment services new uh, authentication processes mm -hmm. uh, kind of new protections and actually a a an increasing willingness to be quite aggressive with websites and criminals who are uh, found operating from the dark web and online so retailers move from being uh, recipients of crime and trying to tackle it once it's in to actually taking down these websites and there's a strong public good angle there as well which I think is quite worth celebrating and sometimes gets lost. So moving on to the final topic that we're going to discuss today thinking about greater collaboration and innovation between retailers and also with their supply chain. So innovation across the retail sector requires a collaborative ecosystem in which corporates, partners, policymakers, startups and other stakeholders work together effectively which demands a genuine understanding about what a strong partnership requires. Liliana, what are you and your members seeing around collaborations, both with suppliers and members of the supply chain, but also actually other organisations which then create a, a different product or sales proposition for the customer? In that respect, we see different trends. Probably uh, the market is experiencing to see what's, uh, what's the best uh, outcome for, uh, for each of them. You could think that there are a few retailers that provide uh, an ecosystem, if you wish. They are both uh, a marketplace, but they are also um, offering a platform, and they also offer services and produce few, uh, few goods. Those are very large retailers, few of them uh, in the world, that are encompassing an entire, an entire industry, if you wish. Then you have, at the opposite spectrum, you have the appearance of platforms which enabled actually very small businesses to sell their products and to compete worldwide and to compete with much larger companies and without many times even having a physical presence. So you see the collaboration between these uh, technological platforms and the small, uh, smaller businesses. 
And finally, we also see collaboration between retailers and businesses which would not be in, uh, in the retail business, but which enable the retailer uh, business. So you see collaboration between, I don't know, between gyms that are also selling gym equipment or between retailers that are selling food, but then a, um, a company that's at the forefront of uh, other kind of technological developments to, uh, to enable that company to, uh, uh, to provide their deliveries. And so obviously from a legal perspective, some of the issues that that generates, thinking around IP ownership, thinking about uh, the data controller relationship, and also actually how you and your partner are going to work together to make sure that the relationship is actually mutually beneficial and ultimately that the project that you're embarking on gets delivered. So James, thinking about that from your perspective too, are there any interesting collaborations that you're seeing from a security perspective? Of course, and, and, and it's all about the end goal, isn't it? It's not really the, the, leave the structure to other people, but think about the end goal and what's the best way to harness the skills together. And and, and that's quite a, a leap of faith. And, and when you are thinking about novel technologies, um, they're going to go wrong quite a bit. They're going to go wrong for quite a while, and then eventually you'll, you'll strike on something. So it does really need that... Um, you both need to be in it for the long haul. Mm-hmm. So one of the, the the areas we're looking at the moment is the Payment Services Directive, which is coming in uh, later this year and requires some pretty strong payment authentication. And we've been working with acquirers, card providers, etc., to try and look at how we can find the best balance between speed and security. So you can build the most secure system in the world you like, but it would only be secure because everyone would get so bored. They would drop their cart and never give you any details and they would never get any products. And therein lies one of the biggest issues that retailers face online, cart abandonment rate. Absolutely. (laughs) It's it's one of the top several issues that I I think people must have sleepless nights thinking about it. (laughs) Equally, you could go way too far, speed everything up a lot, but not really have the checks and balances in the system you need. And again, that's a risk appreciation structure, which I suppose has been the theme of a lot of what we said it's what is the perfect balance rather than what's the absolutely perfect outcome and and that's something that uh, retailers are thinking about with their partners given the the volumes of of uh, turnover they process they're pretty big players in this market and they're able to find some pretty interesting ways to deliver that stuff but it's not I don't think it's perfect I don't think anyone thinks we've quite got there yet and there are some pretty difficult examples in the past of where additional authentication models have come out Mm -hmm. and have worked but only because everyone got so bored it just fell over and stopped dead. And, and actually, I think to give them their dues, officials in government accept that and accept the need to be you know, pretty um, commercially minded on this. And, and that's, that's one of the things. So again, we need to think about the relationship between legislation and policy and, and the market. So if you look at the, the technologies that essentially perform services enabling much smaller companies to hit a much bigger market, or indeed actually um, individuals to become retailers. We're all retailers now. We can all sell our old shoes or the Christmas present we don't want or what have you. I'm sorry if anyone sees the present they gave me <laughs> online. Um, but if you look at the uh, Network Information Services Directive, which contains all sorts of slightly difficult and slightly vague provisions around what they call online marketplaces and has been implemented as best they can by DCMS, but again, there are some gaps. You know, that might not encourage you to start looking at um, the possibilities um, down these kind of roads. And that would be a shame if actually people were too risk-averse on that one. It's worth understanding what the the legal risks in the NIS directive are, or understanding what the requirements are under PSD2, but don't overstate them, don't overplay them, don't go too far, 
don't stop your organisation from operating because you've misunderstood quite how strong some of these things are. That's really interesting. Thank you, Liliana. Thank you, James, as representatives of the British Retail Consortium for your time today and for that fascinating discussion on how tech is shaping the future of retail. So thank you both for coming along. Thank you. Thank you. So thanks to Liliana Danilla, an economist, and James Martin, crime and security advisor from the British Retail Consortium, for sharing their insights on how tech is shaping the future of retail and how retailers can best mitigate some of the security risks associated with it. Do look out for further podcasts from the global business law firm DLA Piper as we explore the influence of regulation and emerging technologies in business and wider society. Several podcasts, including episode 13 of our Tech Law podcast series, where I and my colleagues Ruth Hoy and Gurpreet Dura analyse tech's role in the changing retail landscape, as well as ones focusing on robotics and automation, artificial intelligence and cybersecurity, are already available for you to listen to on our website or maybe accessed via the Apple Podcast app or SoundCloud, as well as other apps and services for Android and other phones. Do also note that we will be hosting our widely acclaimed DLA Piper European Technology Summit 2019 on Tuesday the 15th of October at ETC Venues, 155 Bishopsgate, London. We've got a packed agenda on the day and I shall be moderating a panel under the banner of Revitalising Retail, discussing how tech is shaping the future of retail. Do follow DLA Piper on our social media channels and look out for further details due to be published soon, allowing you to register to join us for that exciting full day exploring a variety of aspects of digital transformation and emerging technologies across multiple industries with eminent industry leaders. Thank you from me, Chloe Forster, technology lawyer at global law firm DLA Piper.